everyone. You're listening to The Future of Food is You, a production of the Cherry Bomb Podcast Network. I'm your host, Abina Samwa, and each week I talk to emerging talents in the food world and they share what they're up to, as well as their dreams and predictions for what's ahead. As for me, I'm the founder of The Eden Place, a community that's all about gathering people intentionally around food. I love this new generation of chefs, bakers, and creatives making their way in the worlds of food, drink, media, and tech. Today's guest is Ifra Ahmed. Ifra is a Somali-born chef and writer splitting time between New York and Seattle. Ifra's work focuses on food, culture, memory, and migration. In addition to being a New York Times cooking contributor, she's the founder of Milk and Myrrh, a pop-up culinary experience introducing audiences to Somali cuisine and culture. Ifra and I chat about the future of Somali food, archiving food cultures that are rooted in oral traditions, and how she thinks about community in growing her career. Thank you to Kerrygold for supporting The Future of Food Is You. Kerrygold is the iconic Irish brand famous for its rich butter and cheese made in Ireland with milk from grass-fed cows. I was recently in Ireland with Kerrygold and got to meet some of the people behind their signature butter and cheese. I spent an afternoon with Kerrygold's cheese tasters to learn how classic cheddars like Dubliner and Skellig are aged. I visited the Ballymaloo Cookery School and watched Rachel Allen make some champ, which is basically an Irish take on mashed potatoes filled with scallions and Kerrygold salted butter. In the gold foil, of course. We also spent an afternoon with the Grub Ferno family, the cheesemakers behind the Kerrygold Cashel Blue Farmhouse Cheese, perfect for any cheese board or salad topping. It was wonderful just to see how Kerrygold is such a big part of Irish culinary culture. We even got to meet the famous cows. The Cleary family in County Waterford introduced us to their herd, and I learned so much about what goes into producing the best milk for Kerrygold's butter and cheese. Be on the lookout for some cow selfies on my Instagram. Each time I reach for my favorite unsalted butter or yummy cheddar, I will be thinking of those cows and their dreamy pasture. Look for Kerrygold Butter and Cheese at your favorite supermarket, specialty grocery store, or cheese shop, and visit KerrygoldUSA.com for recipes and product information. Some Cherry Bomb housekeeping. Don't miss the newest issue of Cherry Bomb's print magazine. The theme is the future of food, and the issue was inspired by this podcast. Inside, you'll find great stories, recipes, and our Future of Food 50 list of rising stars, many of whom you've heard on the show. You can buy a copy of the issue or subscribe at cherrybomb.com. You can also find a copy at one of our amazing retailers, like Kitchen Arts and Letters in Manhattan and Vivian Culinary Books in Portland, Oregon. Check out cherrybomb.com for a complete list of shops that carry our magazine. Let's check in with today's guest. Ifra, thank you so much for joining us on the Future Food is You podcast. Thank you for having me. Where did you grow up and how did food show up in your life? I grew up in the rainy Pacific Northwest city of Seattle. How did food show up in my life? It showed up in two ways. The main way is via like Somali food and just constantly being around Somali food. And the other way would be being an immigrant or refugee kid, having a fascination with American food because that's something that you don't know, like you're in a new country. One of my like earliest (laughs) memories of being in America is we lived like right around the corner from a McDonald's in our very first apartment in Seattle where we were resettled. 
every morning, like when my mom would like open the window, the first smell that I would get is the McDonald's french fry smell. So that's one of my earliest memories of food and like growing up in Seattle. And then in terms of Somali food, my mom, she really tried to make sure that we were connected to like Somali culture and like Somali cuisine. For me, the way that showed up beyond just like eating Somali food was also getting these kind of like culinary lessons from my mom. You know, I call it Hoyo means mom in Somali, so I call it Hoyo's cooking school. <laughs> yeah, and that started when I was around seven or eight and just learning basic things like how to make tea, you know, like Somali sell tea, how to make eggs and things like that. From there, I became really fascinated by food. I think we're all like Food Network kids, you know. Oh, yeah. All of us who are, you know, now in the food scene in some way, I think share that commonality of growing up watching the Food Network, getting into the different shows, experimenting with food. A lot of the time, I wouldn't be experimenting with Somali food. I would be experimenting with American food because that's not something I was being taught. And so I would be making like mac and cheese or have weird food hyperfixations, which I definitely should have picked up on earlier. I just realize now yeah. that I have like food hyperfixations. But when I was younger, I would be like, oh man, I'm really into pancakes right now. So I'm going to try to like learn how to make pancakes. I'm really into eggs. How many different ways can I make eggs? And my younger brother was always like the person that just had to try all the... He was your taste tester? He was my taste tester, essentially, yeah. So I think those are some of my earliest memories of food in Seattle and yeah. You mentioned a lot of the American foods that you were experimenting with. What were some of the Somali dishes that made it to your table from Hoya, your mom? I mean, Somali dishes were the core. We would cycle between the core two dishes, which are rice and spaghetti or like pasta. And so maybe you'd have like spaghetti, Somali style spaghetti for a couple days, and then you would have rice and like goat meat. The spaghetti usually had thinly sliced steak and things like that. But those were the two most common. And then, you know, you had Somali style anjero, which is similar to Ethiopian anjera, but also physically looks exactly like an Indian dosa, but tastes like neither of those things. So we would have anjero in the morning, like for breakfast, soaked in Somali tea and ghee and sugar, which is like my favorite breakfast of all time. Yeah. yeah. So almost like a crepe of sorts. Yeah. yeah. Well, more like a thick pancake, like okay. soaked in tea. Yeah. yeah. It's really good. And then, but we do, we do have a crepe. It's called malawah. It's like a cardamom crepe. Okay. And so we would have that sometimes too. So those are the main Somali dishes that we would have. Yeah. What was the Somali experience like growing up in Seattle? Where was your mom going to grocery shop? How was she able to find things that she couldn't have found back in Mogadishu or where you grew up? My mom was going between American grocery stores for just basic vegetables, things like that. And also like American foods that we liked, you know, like ketchup and things like that. There was a market that was near our apartment in Tequila, which is a little outside of Seattle. And it was called Larry's Market. So we would always walk over there. It's not there anymore. RIP Larry's Market. But my mom would always like go shop there. And then there were so many Somali halal stores in the area because Tequila was sort of like the hub of Somalis. You know, we started arriving in Seattle in the mid-90s. So my family got there February 1996. And we were one of like the earlier families and now you know we are a huge diaspora like in Seattle but at that time there weren't a lot of Somali families Mm. but they were starting to move there because they all had family there too and people would 
come into town and maybe open up a store. And so there would be all these small halal grocery stores that you could go to. And then eventually we had like a mall. We had like a Somali mall, which was just kind of like a souk, you know, you could go in and are you looking for an Eid outfit? Are you looking for Ramadan materials? Are you looking for meat? Are you looking for gold? You know, and you could just go and yeah. get all that. My mom would often go to these halal stores and get various spices or fresh halal goat meat. When you start to, you know, really enjoy the process of recipe developing, testing out, mm-hmm. when did you start to have a passion for food writing? Food writing probably came much later, like more into adulthood, but I was really just into writing and reading in general when I was young and still. And I was like a book nerd. So I actually won an award <laughs> in elementary school for for reading, I think it was like a thousand books. Yes, literature. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, and actually my first job when I was in high school, when I was a freshman in high school, was at the public library. That the library is a cool page. job. Reading and writing has been, you know, like a long time passion. And my mom like really emphasized that as a way to also learn English. Like when we came to the country when I was younger and food writing, I don't think I knew food writing existed like high school, college or anything like that. I, it wasn't until I came to New York that I really started getting into food writing. But I would say that the cooking came first, and then there was, like, reading and writing constantly separate of what we now know as food writing. When you first moved to New York, what was your relationship to Somali food like, and how did you use it as a means to educate yourself on the New York City food Mm -hmm. scene? Because New York City food scene is so diasporic. It's like every culture exists here, some in authenticity, some with fusion, some with other elements as well, too. It's interesting because New York is such a diverse place, but I think the first more more recent Somali restaurant didn't exist in the city of New York until 2016. Mm. I'm sure there were like unofficial restaurants when there was more of a Somali presence here, maybe prior to the war in the 90s with the sort of like first wave of Somalis that came to New York, who then left New York once more Somalis came. But there wasn't much happening with Somali food. And the fact that you can only find one Somali restaurant in New York is still pretty wild to me. Mm -hmm. It's a great restaurant. It's in Harlem. It's called Safari. And my friend Mona runs it. And so once Safari opened, I was like, oh, my God, yes, finally, you know. But I lived in Brooklyn. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's a track. It's a track. Yeah. And so the closest thing that I could get, like if I didn't want to make Somali food or trek to Harlem, was Yemeni food. Mm. So I would go to a Yemen cafe, which I just adore. Love. I love. love that little quarter of I, Atlantic. Yeah. With that's, Sahadis across yeah, the street. Yeah. yeah. That's usually where I do my shopping, too, nice. for spices and stuff. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't much Somali food to be found here beyond safari. But I would make Somali food. And at the time, I was in school. And basically, I would use Somali food as a way to introduce people to Somali culture. So whenever we had even like a neighborhood block party, like I would make sambusa and bispas hot sauce. And I would take it to like our block parties or I would take it to like my classes. Like if, you know, we were having like an end of the semester type thing. If I had friends over, I would be making Somali food. I was already trying to introduce people to the culture via the food, but I don't think I really like realized that I was doing it. It just was like, I'll just bring some booze, you know. What were you studying when you came to New York? Law. Another law school one caught by the Yeah, I, like- I literally just had this conversation with 
I was doing a chef residency at Etsy yesterday, and the chef there was talking about how his wife, basically, her dad was a lawyer, and there just seems to be some kind of pipeline between legal or like really kind of quote unquote serious fields. Not that food isn't serious, yada yada, whatever. But there's some kind of pipeline that happens to like going into being like a chef or into food in some yeah. capacity. I've seen it a lot. Yeah, no, yeah. the law, the law one is common. It's quite common. I feel yeah. like there's so many ex-lawyers want to be lawyers. But I also think it could be one of those things when when you work in an industry that's so intense. Yeah. You need some sort of release. And a lot of people use food as a release. Like, I use baking as a release when yeah. I worked in tech. I use it as a way to connect to myself, totally. channel myself, explore. Totally. And so I think when food has so many outlets, it's very easy for you to just dive into one and turn it into something yeah, absolutely. professional. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, for me also, it was just like I was studying international human rights law and also immigration. And my undergrad degree was in political science and pre-law the work that I was doing and what I was studying, it was very intense Mm -hmm. emotionally, mentally. At the same time, you're also, it's not just random legal cases or whatever. A lot of the time you're connected with people in your community and you're really also feeling what they're going through, right? And so it's hard to go home and just leave that at the door. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Be sure to sign up for the newsletter over at cherrybomb.com. It's the best way to stay up to date. You'll get podcast news, details on all Cherry Bomb events and ticket sales, and the latest on Cherry Bomb magazine. Look out for it every Friday in your inbox. Well, let's talk about your pop-up, Milk and Myrrh. You have these incredible dinners, pop-ups, experiences that you've had in Seattle, Los Angeles, and in Brooklyn. What inspired the name? So the name came from this vintage Somali cookbook. I think it was made in 1964, or it might be 67. And that book's really special to me because there aren't a lot of Somali cookbooks in existence. I think maybe less than 10 that I can think of, maybe less than five. So when I found that book, and it's also the oldest Somali cookbook I've seen. Yeah. I was so excited because we're also an oral cooking culture and our recipes are not written down. And so I was going through that book and in the introduction, it was just talking about Somali culture, Somali people. And it's just interesting to see how they were viewing Somali culture and Somalia in the 60s, you know, in a time that they're just coming off of independence and everything's like super hopeful in there, it had a line about how Somalia has had so many nicknames, and they were going through the nicknames, and one of the nicknames was the Land of Milk and Myrrh. And I had been looking for a name for my pop-up for a while at that point, and I was just like, I saw that, and I was like, that's it. Yeah. It's Milk and Myrrh. It hit. It hit. Yeah. It connected. And I love that it was one of the nicknames that Somalia had, because we're a very nickname-based culture. I love that. And it was just so beautiful because also we use frankincense and myrrh so much. And I just was like, this feels really representative of my culture at mm-hmm. the same time. What does a typical menu look like at your dinner pop-ups? So typical menu and also, I guess, like the experience. Menu really just depends on where I am. So am I in New York? Am I in L.A.? Am I in Seattle? What do I have available to me I also look at, like, seasonality, like, what season is it? When I'm in L.A., I tend to make a lot of, like, plant-forward items. 
I did mushroom sambus there, for example, a lot of vegan items as well, which is not easy with <laughs> Somali cuisine, where we really believe that if you don't have meat on the plate, then you're not eating a meal. Ooh, let them know. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't necessarily subscribe to that, but I did experience that in my four years of vegetarianism in high school. <laughs> so I really just look at what is available to me again and what season it is, what needs there are of the people who have RSVP'd. You know, am I doing gluten-free? Like, what am I doing in regards to that? If I'm in Seattle, I try to really do sort of like seafood forward menu. And yeah, it just really varies. One really cool thing that I did, I think it was like 2021, 20, I did a custard series like for my desserts. Oh, very And cute. I thought that was really fun. It was like a vegan Somali like custard series because when we would have these parties growing up, they're called martiqats. And marti means guest, and qad means to lift. Mm. And so you're kind of like uplifting your guests, I guess. Somali is very poetic, the Somali yeah, language. Is I very, like it. It's yeah. very literal sometimes, too. So when we would have these parties growing up, one of the desserts that we would have was a custard-based dessert. And mm-hmm. so I just wanted to do like a fun play on that. And so I did a salted date custard in L.A. because I was like, people in L.A. love dates. <laughs> They love their superfoods. <laughs> they love their superfoods. Yeah. I did a mango custard in Seattle, and I did a roasted banana custard in New York. So that's just an example. Like I like to just play with different ideas that are maybe inspired by what I grew up with or where I am or what the needs are. And the typical experience, it depends if I'm doing a burrito pop-up versus I'm doing a more formal dinner. So when Milk and Mars started out, I used to do like these really formal dinners and people like 30 to 40 people would get tickets and we would course everything out and they would have the music and I would come out and talk and explain the menu and talk to them about some of the culture and they would have a chance to mingle and get to know each other. And it was a whole three, four hour experience. When I did a, my chef residency in LA in early 2022, I wanted to do something more casual because I was like, these people love breakfast burritos. This is a city that loves breakfast burritos. And at that point, I had thought up of a Somali style Angera burrito about like 10 years prior. I think I like tweeted about it or something. You, you, know, ma- you made your manifestation. I manifested it. Yeah. I manifested it. Yeah. I made the Somali style breakfast burritos. And that experience is a little different than the formal fancy kind of like plated you know it's very cash it's like you pre-order and then you can either pick up and go or you can chill and I really love the pop-up that I had in New York at Rodora back in January mm-hmm, mm-hmm. New York had kind of been waiting like my New York fans or friends of the burrito had been waiting for a milk and myrrh pop-up there and when I did it it felt like this big kind of like family reunion and it just felt like everyone I had ever known came to get a breakfast burrito the two experiences are different but they're both very fun something we've talked about a little bit and I think just really shows up in your work is the joy and the beauty of culture preservation. Mm-hmm. You really pride yourself on using your whatever medium you find yourself in to share and speak about the nuances and the things that come up in Somali Somali cuisine and Somali American cuisine. Mm-hmm. How do you think the pop-up serves as a medium for cultural preservation? Hmm, that's a good question. I think it's not even necessarily... Because I think when you think about cultural preservation, you're thinking sometimes like, you know, the thought is the only people that are experiencing that cultural preservation attempt are the people that are from that culture. And I think the pop-ups are interesting because it's both for the people 
that are Somali. It's both for Somali people and an introductory to non-Somali people. It's interesting because I think like when you're coming as a Somali person from my conversations with other Somali people, they feel very much like at home and they feel like they're getting something that they haven't been able to experience in a while. Maybe they live away from home or they don't have access to Somali food. And so I think the way that Milk and Myrrh is working for Somali people that come to the pop-up is, oh, wow, like I'm seeing my culture represented in front of me. I get to go and experience it sort of in a different context, maybe outside of like my family home. And it's something that kind of feels like a homecoming to a lot of people versus I think, and is that cultural preservation in that sense, right? But for non-Somalis, I think what it really is, again, is an introduction to Somali cuisine. And so I am doing cultural preservation through milk and myrrh pop-ups, but each guest is experiencing it in a different way. Everyone has a relationship to food rooted in where they came from and who they are and how they think about their relationship to eating and culture. So Mm -hmm. it's amazing that you do offer that platform for yourself But through that platform, other people get a chance to experience that relationship for themselves. Totally. Well, let's talk about your writing. You are a frequent contributor to the New York Times. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you do get a little recipe of the day shout out, which is always a joy to see. Always appreciate that. What was the process like of getting to write for the New York Times? The process was that I had been writing for other outlets for a while. And it's an amazing institution. You get a lot of support. The food section, you get a lot of support. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of talented people there that I like have learned so much from. For me, I very much believe in getting experience, especially transitioning careers. I really wanted to just dip my toes into food writing. And so I started with other publications so that I could have that experience of food writing, of recipe development, and to kind of really learn the industry and learn the profession. And then from there, I think I had pitched them like a personal essay or something. They, I think, very rarely do freelancer personal essays. And so that essay didn't end up going to them. It went to a different publication. But from there, I was like, oh, this is still cool, though. Like, I feel like I can probably just try again. And Ramadan was coming up. And so I was like, oh, I would really love to see more recipes from throughout the Muslim world represented Mm -hmm. instead of sort of like the same coverage that you get across like different publications. And so I had just pitched to them a Ramadan recipe and that's how it worked. (laughs) Yeah. Considering that you focus a lot on Somali American food Mm -hmm. and a lot of your recipes for the times are based on Mm -hmm. on Somali American culture, do you ever feel pressure to only stick in that lane? How do you feel about the responsibility of writing for such a big publication with that lane in mind? I don't feel a pressure to only write about Somali cuisine. I think whatever I would want to write about, they're definitely open to. And I think for me, I'm very intentionally writing about Somali cuisine. Do I have other recipes that are non-Somali recipes? Of course. I am constantly cooking at home. I'm making a mix of Somali and American and, frankly, so many other cuisines. But for me, because of the lack of Somali cookbooks and documentation, written documentation of Somali cuisine, I feel my time is best used in that lane because I want there to be something, whether it's just me or more people, I want there to be something that 
my daughter's generation or even my generation can have access to. And I see pioneers like, you know, the food blog Hawash that really started a lot of that work and other Somali food blogs in like the mid-2000s. I really just see my work as a continuation of that. And so I know that I've been doing primarily Somali recipes, but that's on purpose. I take it really seriously to like I'm consulting Somali linguists. I think I tweeted once that for recipe developers and chefs like myself who don't come from a culture in which things are documented via writing, like recipe writing, we're not just doing the recipe development portion. You know, sometimes I feel like a historian. Sometimes I feel like a detective. I'm tracking people down. I'm going into archives that like barely have the resources that I'm looking for. And so I I don't feel like just a recipe developer. And I do take it very, very seriously, knowing that it's also a representation of Somali people, right? Yeah. What advice would you then give to, one, a young writer who grew up with multiple identities Mm -hmm. that's trying to make it into the food world? What advice would you give to them for having their voice and for making their voice known, especially at large publications for food writing? I think the most important advice I would have is to get as much experience as you can. It's always great to shoot for the moon, but also build your way there, too, you know. Other than that, I would just say be as authentic as you can. There is a way to stay true to yourself and still get the work done. Well, let's talk about another big writing project you're working on. You are working on your first cookbook. Mm -hmm. Congratulations. Thank you so much. That's really exciting. Can you tell us what it's about and what stage you're at in the process? Because I know it's a long one. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's pretty early stages, but it's a book that I literally have had in mind for years now. I think I have been talking about it as early as 2017. Essentially, I'll vaguely mention that I'm working on a book about the concept of forced migration, which is something I've written about a lot, and its impact on Somali cuisine, both Somali cuisine in the diaspora and back home. And it also features spotlights on various professionals in the Somali food world that have contributed to the development of Somali cuisine in some way. And it's just a look at really how migration has impacted Somali food. When you were talking about recipe development and connecting with linguists and historians, you mentioned that a lot of Somali culture is rooted in oral tradition. Mm -hmm. How do you think about recipe development and educating your audience in the westernized way of recipes and measuring cups when Somali culture is so rooted in oral tradition when it comes to cooking? It's really difficult at times because you're trying to create an exact recipe that people can replicate at home. And I feel like a culinary translator a lot of the time I'm not starting from the same place as other recipe developers who maybe have that background of coming from a written cooking culture. I am literally at times feel like I'm between our elders who have those traditions and a kind of a newer generation that is wanting to learn those traditions. I feel like I'm bridging the gap. And a lot of the time it's me just saying like, but how much, you know, how much of that, how much of this? But what does that mean? What does that look like? Can you show me? And I will literally like measure it out myself. And then me just like messing around at home, trying to translate this math. It can be very, very difficult for sure. Something I've really 
loved about the way you work is you are so supportive of all your friends and people you meet and people that you are connecting with in the food world. As you've been navigating your career Mm -hmm. and you wear so many different hats, how have you thought about community Mm -hmm. in terms of your work and also in terms of yourself in the food world? I think my work is very community-based, inherently community-based, because I feel like I'm working really on behalf and with the the general Somali community. For me, being so community-minded is not new. That's how I was raised. That's like what my politics, you know, are. It's how my mother taught me to be. And so it's something that just comes natural to me. And I very much also believe in, I think a lot of people think that they kind of have to climb up or something to get somewhere. And I very much believe in that Issa Rae kind of working alongside your community and helping each other achieve what you want to achieve. I think that is like the best way and the least sort of like capitalistic way of like navigating and like working with one another. I think so many of us come from communal cultures. And so I think that you can really see when people have those values and I guess like when they don't. And for me, this is also, now I'm in the culinary space. It's also an extension of my work where I used to run a magazine for Somali women creatives. And I ran it with my cousin. We founded it in 2014. And that was also very community-based. And so everything is both an extension from my childhood and the values that I was raised with and just a continuation of that too. How do you hope that your work inspires the future for immigrant cultures as they exist in the Western food landscape? I hope that my work is an example or a demonstration of really not having to choose between your identities and being able to be authentic in whatever space that you're in. I hope that my work inspires a love or intentionality to remain connected to whatever your home culture or your parents' culture is. And I hope that I can encourage other people to try to preserve those cultures as well, whether they're Somali or not, right? Yeah. Because I think there's just so much overlap between immigrants and refugees, no matter what their background is. We have a kind of a core experience that follows a lot of us. Ifra, we're going to do our future Flash 5. Okay. Are you excited? I'm excited. Let's do it. Let's do it. The future of food writing. More marginalized voices. The future of pop-ups. More support for pop-ups. The future of food diversity. Here to stay. The future of diasporic cooking. Expanding. And finally, the future of Seattle. Still going? (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) Ifra, thank you so much for joining us. On the podcast, mm-hmm. if we want to continue to support you, where are the best places to find you? So Instagram would be the primary place. So my personal account, if Ahmed, I-F-A-H-M-E-D. And then also the Milk and Myrrh account, if you want to follow along with the pop-ups. Just Milk and Myrrh, all one word. And then if you want to try my recipes, you can find them by going to the New York Times cooking page and just searching my name. Amazing. Thanks so much. Thank you. Before we go. Our guest is going to leave a voicemail at the Future of Food mailbox, just talking to themselves 10 years from now. You have reached the Future of Food as You mailbox. Please leave your message after the beep. Hi, Efrah. This is you 10 years ago. I hope that wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you feel fulfilled. I hope that you feel proud of yourself. I hope that by now the cookbook is out and that people are enjoying it whether they're Somali people who are reconnecting with their culture 
or they are non-Somali people who just want to learn about Somali cuisine and culture. I hope that you have gotten a TV show or have done a documentary in relation to migration and its impacts on food. I hope that you're still getting to meet new people and learning stories of food, of migration, of cultural preservation. I hope that you're seeing your daughter grow up and that you're getting to take in every day with her and you're getting time with your mom. I hope that you're just ultimately fulfilled with whatever it is that you have going on and that you're continuing to learn every day and continuing to cook and share your gifts and your passions with the people around you. That's it for today's show. Do you know someone who you think is the future of food? Tell us about them. Nominate them at the link in our show notes or leave us a rating and a review and tell me about them in the review. I can't wait to read more about them. Thanks to Kerrygold for sponsoring our show. The Future of Food as You is a production of the Cherry Bomb Podcast Network. Thanks to the team at CityVox Studios, executive producers Carrie Diamond and Catherine Baker, and associate producer Jenna Sadu. Catch you on the future flip. Thank you.